and welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have those conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. I'm Lori Steele. And I'm Joey Boudreaux. And we appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we appreciate you spreading the word Absolutely. about donation. And Joey, you are surprised because uh, this is a, a family thing for you. Yeah, well, we're glad to have you guys listening in as usual. And, and I got a surprise phone call from one of my uh, cousins and he told me, hey, man, you know, I've, I've been listening to the podcast and uh, and enjoy what you guys are, are doing. And I would like to have you come out to my event that I'm putting on next weekend to tell a little bit more about what you guys Aww. are talking about on your podcast. Wow. It was awesome. It was exciting. That's cool. I heard a little bit of a Acadiana accent there <laughs> from you as well when you're talking about your family. That's that right. happens well, to me, too. from Brobridge, yeah. so what do you expect? <laughs> <laughs> so we love that. Thank you to Joey's cousin, and thanks to all of you who help us spread the word because we try to make it as easy as possible to find us. Absolutely. You can find us anywhere on uh, on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast app might be. Yeah, and you can follow up um, like on Facebook. We post a lot of pictures of stuff that we talk about here on the podcast. Um, so that's Donate Life Louisiana. And Twitter and Instagram, you can find us at Donate Life LA. Uh, we just try to put as much information out as possible so that you can have the facts. Make an educated decision. And we'll be bringing you some more information today. First of all, some great new details about breakthroughs for tissue donation. You won't want to miss it. Absolutely. In in our community segment, we'll be talking about National Donor Sabbath Weekend. And we'll honor a hero, and um, her family continues to pay it forward. So there's a cheer and dance competition coming up. We'll fill you in, and we'll take your questions and answers here on The Gifted Life. We have reached the recovery segment here on the Gifted Life Podcast, and I'm excited because I think we're all going to learn a little something Absolutely. from this. Um, we're kind of delving into the world of tissue and some of the new things that we are able to do. Our CEO, Kelly Ranham, uh, was out at, at one of these um, conferences and got to hear this guy, Kent Baca, speak, and she was just intrigued, and she said, we need to share this information. So he's here on the podcast um, to tell us all this good news. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm you know, as you know, Laurie, I'm the chief clinical officer and I oversee the organ side of LOPA. And it's always very interesting to me to hear more information about the tissue side. And, and we are fortunate enough to have the vice president of plastic and reconstructive surgery franchise at LifeNet, Kent Bacchus. How are you doing, Kent? Very well, Joey. Thank you and Laurie for having me. Hey, it's very exciting that you're here. And, and uh, you know, I've kind of heard and, and noticed over the uh, over the past few years there's been such an increase in the need in skin recovery. And we've seen our skin donors go up significantly over the past few years. So can you tell me a little bit about what you guys have been focusing on recently at LifeNet? Happy to, Joey. And, and it's not a coincidence when you say you, you've seen recovery go up when I start to talk about what we're focusing on because we're seeing a, an urgent and growing need in these areas. So our areas of focus are chronic wound management. So that's things like diabetic foot ulcers, venous leg ulcers. So very, very challenging conditions to treat. And then our other area of focus is breast reconstruction post mastectomy. So women who've had breast cancer and have had a mastectomy and need a reconstructed breast. So obviously both of those areas are very large and growing areas. And, and to just give you a brief uh, bit of facts about the two areas, 
If you look at chronic wound management, the number of people in the United States that are affected by diabetes is growing dramatically, and we're well over 25 million people in this country right now. Diabetes is one of the top 10 leading causes of death in the U.S., and unfortunately, Worldwide, 70% of all leg amputations occur in diabetic patients, and they're really the result of these uh, diabetic foot ulcers that just continue to erode and don't heal and ultimately lead to uh, an amputation. And beyond just the, the issue of amputation, this is a very, very, very significant health risk in this country. If you have a diabetic foot ulcer, you are likely, in 50% of the cases, to have had an amputation within five years. And if you have an amputation within five years, 50% of those patients are likely to, to pass away within five more years of that initial amputation. So this is a huge health risk. And currently, the U.S. healthcare system spends more than $500 billion annually on diabetes management. Uh, breast reconstruction post-mastectomy is also a significant health challenge in this country. Uh, in fact, right now, roughly a quarter of a million new cases are diagnosed annually, and of those cases, roughly 180,000 mastectomies are performed annually. And once you've had a mastectomy, uh, then you, you can go ahead and get your reconstruction. And so the, the growing need for, for mastectomies has led to the growing changes in, in breast reconstruction techniques. Uh, and we'll talk about that uh, further as we go along. But I also want to mention one other thing about breast reconstruction to make sure your audience is aware of this, and that is that breast reconstruction has special legal status in the United States. Regardless of your ability to pay, regardless of your insurance, you are guaranteed a breast reconstruction in this country. So that gives you a sense for how significant of a societal issue this is as well. That's amazing. And going back to the, the, the diabetes, I was uh, an emergency room nurse for years and, and I worked on the floors for years and it seemed like you know, the, the largest portion of our population were diabetics and, and seeing these, you know, patients struggle with so many infections, you know, they, they would have, they would start getting a diabetic ulcer, you know, on one of their limbs. And then before you know it, it was one infection after the other, you know, and it is amazing that you guys are, are, are making such an impact on this part, you know, of the medical society. Well, Joey, thank you for, for your comment because you're absolutely right. That's that's what's led to this issue is that those those ulcers that you had saw clinically that grow and grow and grow, because those patients have uh, decreased sensitivity with the diabetic neuropathy and the nerve pain that goes with that and the decreasing nerve uh, sensation, they frequently don't realize they have those ulcers until it's almost too late to treat them. And so our goal is not only to, to treat and rectify those ulcers, but to provide the education that will help people understand the the seriousness of this condition and know what to do to uh, take care of themselves so they don't end up in this situation. And let's talk about some of the changing techniques when it comes to breast reconstruction. You mentioned that, um, the need for larger grafts and how you guys handle the need. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question, Lori. And, and what's happened over the years, we, let's go back a few years in breast reconstruction. What typically used to happen after a mastectomy is that a woman's breast was reconstructed with her own tissue. So it was called an autologous breast reconstruction, and it was frequently done with 
uh, stomach tissue or leg tissue or tissue from the back or buttocks, and it would allow the, the surgeon to reconstruct the breast for the patient after mastectomy. But obviously, when you're taking tissue from another site on the body, you're creating a secondary wound. And so that was challenging from a healing perspective for patients. And it's also challenging when you're still in the middle, potentially, of your, your chemotherapy and, your, and or your radiation therapy. So what happened over time is there was a desire to move towards an implant-based reconstruction that wouldn't necessitate a secondary wound creation to, to harvest tissue for the breast mound. And so when that started happening, what we started to see is surgeons taking a, a, a breast implant placing it under the pectoralis major muscle of the patient and using that muscle to hold the implant in place. And while that created some nice outcomes for, for patients, it put some challenges physiologically on that patient because, as you can imagine, when you take a muscle and you insert something like an implant underneath the muscle, it's going to be very snug, which holds it in place. Mm -hmm. But the sheer act of putting it there and having that snug, tight fit had, had led to some pain and discomfort for the patients, loss of range of motion, and frankly, a loss of the more aesthetic-looking breast mound after the reconstruction. So over time, what happened is surgeons started to realize that these donated human tissues could be just the piece of tissue they needed to extend that muscle and put the implant in under a little less pressure, where if you have a little less pressure, you've had to elevate the pec a little bit less, which means your range of motion isn't compromised and the breast mound looks more normal. That has led to a dramatic change in outcomes and dramatic change in the techniques that we've seen. And that happened over the course of about, let's say, 12 to 14 years from 2001 to right about now. And what's evolving now is a further change in technique. And what we're seeing is surgeons using an even larger piece of donated human tissue, wrapping the implant in that tissue and applying it directly into the, the uh, mastectomy without having to elevate the muscle at all. And what that allows the patients to do is to recover a little faster, and not have any compromise of their range of motion or their quality of life or activities of daily living, while at the same time getting a very, very uh, elegant and cosmetic-looking uh, outcome from this reconstruction in a single operation. And that single operation is also critical because that has impacts to the uh, overall healthcare system. In the, the example I described previously, that implant was done in two stages. You would put a tissue expander in to stretch the skin and then go back and put the final implant in. But if you don't need to stretch that skin out, you can go directly to the implant. And changing this reconstruction to a single procedure versus a multiple stage procedure approach has uh, cost implications for the healthcare system. And so it's a very positive outcome from the overall cost of healthcare as well. It sounds like, and you guys are making such a huge imprint here. Are there any things that you guys are doing from a strategic uh, standpoint to, to make sure that there's enough tissue out there to make sure that we are maximizing each gift? 
That's a great question. And, you know, we spend a lot of time in our planning uh, and uh, distribution uh, meetings to ensure that we are identifying the need and contacting our recovery partners uh, to help us procure this uh, wonderful gift of life for, for our patients. And so we spend a, an awful lot of time in that area, and we feel like we've got the right recovery uh, partners and the, the, the right process to ensure that, that our patients are not going to uh, uh, be wanting for tissue as we go forward. And I'm just blown away by um, all this information, which is amazing. So thanks for taking the time to tell us. I was just in a presentation and we had a um, organ recipient up front. And one of the questions that the kids had was, do you have to take medication? And of course, uh, the recipient said, yes, I'm on anti-rejection medications. And so I guess I'm just thinking, do our tissue recipients um, have to take anti-rejection medication as well. You know, we've talked about all these, uh, the help from the tissue. I was just wondering. Laura, that's a great question. And fortunately, they do not. Our tissue is completely decellularized. And beyond taking the cellular remnants out, we further remove virtually all of the DNA. We have a validated process to ensure that greater than 97% of all the DNA is removed from each of the donated grafts. And our tissue is then terminally sterilized at the same level of sterility that a medical device would be sterilized. So anything that would be used in the operating room. And by doing that, by decellularizing the tissue, eliminating the DNA, we basically have eliminated the body's rejection approach. In other words, the body doesn't see this dermis as a foreign body, and so it does not try to reject the tissue. So the recovery time is very uh, uh, minimal, and there's really no long-term issues with the, the tissue at all. Wow. My goodness. We all learned a lot here today. Mr. Kent Bacchus with LifeNet, thank you so much. My pleasure, Lori. Thank you, Joey. Thank you. And if anybody has any questions about what was discussed, info at lopa.org, and we will get with Mr. Kent and get you the answers that you need. Okay, Joey, in the community, um, coming up actually this weekend, National Donor Sabbath. So for those of you who haven't heard of National Donor Sabbath, it's observed annually on the Friday through Sunday two weekends before Thanksgiving, so kind of easy to remember. But it's a three-day observance to talk about donation through the major religion sectors. Right. And, yeah. And that one of those myths, Laurie, that we busted quite some time back on one of the podcasts was, does my religion support donation? And and the fact of the matter is, is that all major religions support donation. They, they feel that it's an act of charity. Yeah. And we see that again and again, and this is just a way that we increase awareness through different means, through the churches primarily. For example, to tell you what's going on at Open Door Fellowship in Spring Hill, Louisiana at the 1030 service, um, it's being dedicated to a donor named Alan Fish, grew up in that community. So the congregation will hear about this hero, they'll learn about his story and about his gifts. So that's happening on the 15th at that service. We also get invited into the Bible study classes before the services so that we can talk in depth. We bring recipients or donor family members to talk about donation. Also, we are offered, um, you know, before the services and after the services to kind of hang out in the lobby areas Mm -hmm. and hand out some facts, talk to these folks, shake hands so that we can just spread the word about donation. And what's really great is we came across a youth pastor at one of the health fairs that I went to and ran up to my table 
grabbed our Donate Life fan and said, I am already signed up and we need to tell people. And I said, I'm following you right here. And this is just um, a a time during the year that we set aside to do this through the churches. So we appreciate those who who jump on board, who want to do it. And it's really a good setting to right. learn more. Absolutely. And and it doesn't just have to be though this time. I know we've got it set aside, true, true. you know, for the weekend, but but we have some areas that they allow us in pretty much all month, you know, uh, throughout the month of November, and it doesn't even have to be the month of November. Right. We're we're available Anytime, if there are any pastors out there that, that would like for us to come and talk or have a, a donor family or a recipient, we're always willing and we want to come and spread the word about donation. Yeah, and so maybe you attend church and say, hey, I think that we should have a recipient um, come and address this or a donor family member. We can help you set that up. Um, so if you go to lopa.org slash speaker, you can request something like that where you are. So send that to us or if If you can't remember that, info at lopa.org. We'll be happy to help. At this point in the podcast, we do want to take the time to honor a hero, someone who gave life to others. And we know this precious girl's story, her family, they're big advocates for donation. They're always with us. They're part of our family now. But we are talking about Lacey Takino. I love her story because she was a registered organ donor, and she made her mom talk about it. So when her mom tells her story, she says she was actually the adult in this situation. I didn't sign up till I had kids, but she made me talk about donation because that's just who she was. That conversation, okay, was July 13th, okay? On August 12th, that same year, so about a month later, she suffered a brain bleed. Right. Well, she was uh, just, of course, getting started with school, and she was doing some things with cheerleading. And her mom, on that day, her mom said, something made me take a picture of her, you Mm -hmm. know, and she had a few of her friends around. And, you know, of course, that was the last picture that she would take. And she's told this story many times. Mm-hmm, so it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, very resounding. You know, a little bit later, Lacey uh, developed a headache. She suffered an AV malformation, which is a genetic problem with with the vessels uh, that makes it very easily to, to have an intracranial hemorrhage or, or a stroke. Uh, it's something that was never detected before. It never gave her any problems. And, uh, of course, it was very sudden, so they rushed her into the emergency room. Even with the heroic measures of the physicians and the nurses that day, uh, they weren't able to save her. And she was declared brain dead on August 14, 2006. And, of course, as in all cases like this, her mom was talked to and, and asked if, if she wanted to donate she remembered that conversation that mm-hmm. they had before, mm-hmm. you know, just a few months earlier that Lacey told her this is something that we needed to do. Just an incredible story. Love this family. Mom, Lisa, sister, Lexi, and dad, Chad, all continue to talk about Lacey 
and her gifts. As a matter of fact, back in January, uh, we talked about this on a previous podcast, but um, Lacey was honored uh, in a florograph form during the Rose Parade on the Donate Life float. And they were able to go, the family, and experience that there. And you got to see them I, I come got, back home. Well, I got to see them uh, even before when when they saw the, the florographs for the first time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were allowed to do the last parts of the decorations. And, uh, and, and that's where they kind of put in the little eyebrows and things like that. And it was uh, this was at Lafayette General. It was such a touching event for everyone. It was mm-hmm. such a large crowd that came down when they found out what was going on. It was so touching. It was it was an amazing event. So Lisa and Lexi, especially um, speak at schools, they tell the story of Lacey Takino. And one of the things that they did to honor her, uh, because Lacey uh, was a cheerleader, she was a dancer, so she always had that big smile on her face. But they host the Lacey Takino Dance for a Life Cheer and Dance Competition. So this year, nine years later, nine years after her death, They are hosting this for the third time, and it's going to be at Como High School on November 14th. So um, it's a great day. It's a long day. It's a day of honoring Lacey and experiencing what she loved to do. So if you go to lopa.org, you can learn more about the Lacey Dequino Dance for a Life competition. Um, You can also, while you're there, check out our Faces of Donation so you can see sweet Lacey's face and read her story that mom wrote. You know, it's just a time that we all say thank you to these donors. Um, At this point in this podcast, though, we do want to pause and we want to say thank you to Lacey Takino for the gift of life. Let's tackle a question here on the Gifted Life podcast. One coming in and one that we normally get out in the community a lot, especially from um, high school folks. Just Mm -hmm. curious, if I have cancer, can I still be an organ donor? Well, that's a great question, Lauren. Uh, Well, the the truth of the matter is, yes, you can still be a donor. And and I'll kind of break it down real briefly into organ and eye donation. Uh, For organ donation, there are some cancers that are active cancer that will still allow you to be a donor, an organ donor, like certain skin cancers or there are certain cancers that, that if, if the cancer is just encapsulated and it hadn't spread, then it doesn't really affect the organs. And then others that if it, you've been in, in remission for long enough, then you'd certainly be able to still become an organ donor. So we want to encourage you definitely to continue signing up and don't rule yourself out. Yes. In eye donation, Lori, you can still, they take most active cancers. So as a matter of fact, a lot of their patients come from hospice, Mm -hmm. you know, so uh, so it's really not a big issue for, for eye donation. So you can actually give sight to two different people and have active cancer right now. So don't rule yourself out. Uh, you can absolutely become uh, an organ or an eye donor in, in certain situations. So the long answer to a short question is yes. <laughs> yes. I think you covered it. If you have more, uh, info at lopa.org. Joey, another episode has come to a close here on The Gifted Life. We certainly appreciate everyone who joins us on the podcast and those who listen. Today, we learned a lot. Yeah, Laurie, we want to thank Kent Bacchus, uh, the Vice President of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery Franchise for LifeNet Health. 
he was he was so interesting. You know, it was very interesting on on learning about how tissue is impacting diabetes and ulcers, and then of course also breast reconstructions with breast cancer. Yeah, I always say um, this is what we are doing today. We never know what will happen tomorrow. Right. Well, we just learned what can happen. You know, if you if you wait a little bit and all the powers that be come together, it's just amazing, amazing. I also want to remind you about uh, National Donor Sabbath Weekend. So, um, in the churches, I'm um, in those Bible studies. Uh, you'll probably be hearing about donation. Share your story. Share what you know. And also, the Lacey Takino Cheer and Dance Competition in Lafayette is happening this weekend as well. We have all information at lopa.org. And if there was something that we talked about, you want more information, or you have a question that we didn't cover today, info at lopa.org. We want to thank you for listening. Thanks for spreading the word. Thanks for helping to make life happen. We appreciate you listening here on The Gifted Life. <laughs>